We the Power. We the Power, a podcast from Patagonia. Hello and welcome to We the Power, a podcast from Patagonia all about community energy. I'm Lucy Siegel and this is episode three. By now, if you've been paying attention, you will know that community energy is when a group of citizens come together to produce their own power. And that puts power, money and decision making back at the local level and into the hands of regular people like you and me. It also has the power to solve problems from fuel poverty to empowering young people. If you like the word power, you're going to enjoy this podcast. It's community energy. It's human dynamism. It's the power in people. We the power. We the power. Why? What? Don't don't they think we can be powerful? You've got to work in with people and empower people. So, you know, when people feel empowered, that is a way of them wanting to be more involved. You know, I got so much out of it in terms of the fact that I'm helping my community. At the moment, the feeling is, and it's going to cost more. What am I going to do? We need to make it absolutely positive and fair and community driven, actually. I don't care whether you do it for sustainability or for the money, but make steps and do something. So far in this odyssey, we've met social entrepreneurs who've put solar panels on housing estates in South London. We've met Dutch activists who've convinced governments and courts to cut emissions. We've met incredible matriarchs. And we've even met the odd head of state. I mean, why not? But now in this episode, we're heading off to some small islands because it is the small islands that are leading the way. We're going to go off to the Isle of Egg in the Hebrides of Scotland. I've always actually physically wanted to go there. I'm not going there physically, but anyway. Now, Egg has been powered by renewable community energy since 2009. And I'm going to talk to some eggers about life there. What is it really like when you create and use your own energy? But first, let's understand why small islands are at the forefront of this revolution. James Ellsmore is head of Island Innovation and he knows a thing or two about what's happening in some of the most remote communities on the planet. So I had this initial interest in renewables and that took me to islands actually because often... The issue around renewables, we talk about the economics. Is renewable energy going to be viable? Can it compete with large-scale oil-based or or fossil fuel-based generation? And in islands, obviously, it makes environmental sense, but it's also the economics often line up for a high use of renewables. The reason for that is that you, you don't have the economies of scale that you might have for a large UK-wide or large US power grid. And so you have to think very differently about energy generation. I think by definition, island energy projects are often community energy projects. And it may be for a variety of reasons. Obviously, every island is different. It may be that you only have electricity during the day in some places. But I would say the biggest thing is cost. In the Caribbean, the electricity cost is anywhere from three to seven times higher than it is in Florida. And if you think about the importance of energy. Again, we take it for granted, it's relatively cheap, but it touches every part of the economy. And so if you want to have industry, agriculture, and your electricity is 
multiple times higher than a competitor, then it's very difficult for you to compete. And so that has all these other effects on things like health. Why is it much cheaper to import chicken from uh, the US state of Georgia than it is to rear them in the Caribbean islands? And so it has all these knock-on effects on other aspects of sustainability. Because of these high electricity costs and a need for looking for alternatives, the renewable energy systems of the future are often being pioneered and trialed and tested on islands. And so it's in a way, it's like looking into a microcosm of what all grids should be looking at. And the trends that are happening in island grids are happening 10, 20 years ahead of that. This episode is called Small Islands, Big Ideas. Why? Because it seems that many remote islands have been forced into trying different ideas around renewables and how communities pay for power. But James actually believes anyone can think like an island. What we're talking about is an isolated grid that allows people to do something different. Now, traditionally, islands have been forced to create their own grids, often after campaigning to become part of the mainland system for years. But what's really exciting is that some islands are now producing so much renewable electricity that they want to become part of a bigger grid in order to send energy back. What is an island is a question that I get a lot. Clearly, Greenland and Tasmania and Jamaica you know, have very wide-ranging populations, geography, etc. But what we're really talking about is an isolated grid system to an extent. So a single electricity grid that is maybe providing electricity to a population of 50,000, 100,000 people, you're very limited and you have to prepare for a lot more eventualities when you can spread those costs and those risks over several million people. So obviously Jamaica is a large island, 3.5 million people, but it's still, on the grand scheme of things, you have a limited grid. And so some islands will have cables that go to a mainland area, and that can be an opportunity. And Orkney, which I'm sure we'll talk about some more because it's a fascinating example of community energy, the cable that takes electricity to Orkney was designed to take electricity from mainland Scotland, where it was being generated, to power the islands. Now, that cable is being used in the opposite direction because more electricity is being made in Orkney because of the wind, tidal and other things than can be used there. And so the cable that was designed to take electricity in one direction is now sending it in another direction, back to the mainland and Orkney is producing more electricity than it can actually use. Go Orkney. Go Orkney, exactly. (laughs) Now, Orkney is impressive. Orkney's trialling some of the most advanced renewable solutions that you will find. There's such an abundance of renewable energy at times that on Orkney, they're producing green hydrogen as a means of storing the excess. We have community-owned wind turbines generating power for local villages. We have islanders driving non-polluting cars that run on electricity. Devices that can turn the energy of the waves and the tides into electricity also being tested in the island's waters and seabed. And in the near future, car and passenger ferries here will be fuelled not by diesel, but by hydrogen created from water that has been electrolyzed using power from Orkney's wind, wave and tide generators. If this wasn't enough, the thing that people get really excited about and this is true for most island community energy projects, that's got to be advances in battery technology. Because if the energy can be stored, then islands like Egg on the west coast of Scotland 
can keep the lights on. And they can even do the washing. This is the real thing that excites us all at the end of the day. Now, Maggie Fife is a founding member of Egg Heritage Trust and Egg Electric. She's also enormously good value. I lived for years and years and years just with gas lights, actually, and scrubbing boys' socks, you know. <laughs> no washing machine. Oh, my goodness. So you had to do all your washing by hand? Yeah, I did that for a long, long time, actually. Most people here had a diesel generator, but it was something that, as long as I've lived here, people talked about getting mains electric. At the start of it, it was mainly revolving around the idea that we'd have a subsea cable. That wasn't going to happen because there were no power company who was going to spend millions on a, on a cable for, for so few people, so few households. But eventually we came to a point where we saw that one renewable energy supply for the whole island was the way to go. Egg isn't just a community energy project, it's also a community-owned island. That was a huge help because people here are used to doing things for themselves and they're used to acting by community consensus. If the community says no, then it's a no. There was also no grid to work into. It was effectively ground zero and that can be an advantage. We started looking at an all-island system and with the help of some amazing technical people, we came up with the idea of the system that we've got which incorporates wind, water and solar. And I believe it was the first time that the three elements had been combined in, a, in such a way to pr provide a microgrid. But it was a hard slog. I mean, we had to raise one and a half million pounds for a start off. You know, finding the right people to work with, that was essential. And we were really lucky that the, the people that ended up doing the contract were as committed as we were, really. But they had to admit that they didn't know until it was switched on whether it would all work. Can you describe switch on day at the moment when you switched it on? What was that like? Yeah, amazing. Totally amazing. How did that point change people's lives on egg? Well, I got a washing machine for a start off. It is AAA rated, I have to say. <laughs> it made a huge difference to people's lives because for the first time ever, they'd had 24-hour power. And it also made things like broadband systems a lot more viable. You know, there are a lot of people now able to work from here that you wouldn't have imagined that before. You know, we've got a graphic designer, we've got quite a few musicians. We've got a lawyer, in fact, works from here. You've got a record label? We have a record label indeed. And we're about to have a brewery. Obviously, that needs electric. <laughs> Now that is very exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's actually being built as we speak. Now it seems to me that Eggers are a lot more likely to set up community businesses and that's because they own their island and their energy system. They're also super conscious of their energy use. I suppose it's a bit like messing up your own backyard. Nobody wants to mess up their own energy system. Now this for me is a really big deal. But because of these values and because of the way that they have created their community energy project, they all agreed to a cap on the electricity they use. The 5 and 10 kilowatt cap came up as a discussion and people felt that that was the furthest way. You know, it's not like it's an unlimited supply. So if a big corporation, a big energy corporation came in and said, 
yeah, we like what you're doing here, but we could move you to the next level. We'll take it all over. You're just going to pay as customers. Would you go for it? I don't think so. There's a, a touch of anarchy here, I would say, and a great distrust of big corporations also. And I think people really like the idea of these small community-based projects. It's a lot to do with what we don't have. So somebody comes up with an idea and says, actually, we could work this out. We could do it this way. And that's what we do. <laughs> that touch of anarchy has not only brought renewable community energy to egg, but more importantly, perhaps than anything, it has stopped all the young people leaving, which does happen in lots of remote communities. And it's something that really troubles people who live in remote communities and has particularly troubled people who live on Scottish islands. But have they found a solution? Folk that grew up here, when they're thinking about starting a family, they want their kids to have the same kind of freedom that they had growing up. And that, for me, is a big, big part of Egg. It's just the free-range children. <laughs> now, one of those young folk who've been lured by the sense of freedom along with 24-hour power is Johnny Lynch, a.k.a. Pictish Trail. He is a musician of some repute, I may add, and he runs his own record label, also of some repute, and a recording studio from Egg. You are all in line I met my partner who was a music journalist based down in London and she decided to take voluntary redundancy and to take over the tenancy of her uncle's farm. We'd only just started going out and she moved up here and I thought it was like she was trying to tell me something, like it wasn't working out. It seemed like a really elaborate excuse. <laughs> uh, I'm moving to the Hebrides. All right, well, look, if it's not working out, you can just be honest. <laughs> but no, I went to go and visit her and as soon as I came here to the island, I was totally hooked. It's such an amazing place. It's just so beautiful. Like the waters are so clear. All the colours are super saturated. It's like really beautiful, you know, almost effervescent greens that greet you as soon as you step off the ferry. Mesmerising, really beautiful nature and a really lovely community as well. On my first trip, I was on egg for maybe four or five days. And by the end of that time, I'd pretty much met 95% of the island, I think, at that point. With that first visit, I was so hooked. We were like, right, let's. we need to organise a music festival here. And the next month, we put it on sale. And it sold out within five minutes. And it happened in September of that year. And from September of 2010, I've never really left the island that much, other than for, for touring. I've been living here. Now I've got a family, so I'm not allowed to go anywhere else. You stay there. You need electricity for your business, for your livelihood. Did How much did you think about that when you moved to Egg? And how much do you think about it in sort of day-to-day -day life? Are you conscious of how, how power is being generated? Is it there all the time? Is it just like living anywhere else? Explain to me. 
So when I first moved to Egg, I kind of just took it for granted because at that point, the Egg electric system was up and running and the Eggers, the people who lived here already, were all quite proud of it. They would be telling you, oh yeah, we're not on generators anymore. I'm like, yeah, of course you're not. It's not the 50s or 60s, you know, come on. But they'd been using generators up until a few years previously, you know, and so it was a very new thing. And the neighbouring islands were all still on generators. The island of Muck was using a generator to sort of power most of the island. And it was the generator would go on at seven in the morning and then go off at seven at night or something like that. And so you had to get all your electricity needs done between those hours. <laughs> and you sort of realise what you use electricity for. There's a five kilowatt limit per household on egg and a 10 kilowatt limit for anyone running a business. You make sure you buy appliances that don't use a lot of electricity and aren't power hungry ones. You make sure you don't have the washing machine, tumble dryer, kettle and the hair dryer all going at the same time. <laughs> it means that not a lot of hoovering gets done if you're doing something else. But as an island, I think people are just a lot more conscious of of how they're using their electricity and because it's all self-generated here. It's an amazing thing, you know. Johnny has even managed to stage his own festival on the island. I wonder, is this the first community energy-powered festival? I hope so. It's got a good ring to it. Anyway, it has attracted some major talent. And I like to think that they enjoy sampling the renewable way of life. In the number of years that I've done it, we there's been a few instances where I've brought over a generator to kind of power one of the stages and in recent years I've just thought well actually let's just do not as many stages and just have all the energy just running off what egg's creating because then in that way we're sort of like a completely green festival over the years we've had bands like quite a lot of indie bands like uh, British Sea Power we had Griff Reese from Super Furry Animals come up and play we've had I'm a big electronic music fan, so we've had um, John Hopkins come over and play, an amazing artist called Nathan Fake, James Holden. They want to be part of the experience and and, and feel part of Egg. So I've, I'm, I've been fortunate enough to have a few of my heroes come over and play. Uh, a guy called Steve Mason, who used to be in a band called The Beta Band and uh, makes a bunch of really amazing solo records. And there was a guy last year called Jason Lytle, who was in a band called Granddaddy, who came over. And both of these... I mean, all of the musicians, but th- those two specifically have been really influential in my own career. So brilliant. It's incredible. It just it shows you what is possible. Do you think then, does the rest of the world's energy consumption start to look a little bit obscene, unnecessary? Or do you think more people should follow what's happening on egg? I'm very much aware that it's a, a special thing that egg generates its own electricity and all that sort of stuff. So I think I'm conscious that I have to kind of make use of that as much as possible in a way that's not contradicting the aims of what the island is. Because it's, you know, you step off the ferry onto the island of Egg and there's a big sign about Egg's green credentials. Egg wears its green credentials on its sleeve. It lets you know that this is what we're about and we want you to, you know, keep these ideals in mind as well. What I really love about Egg is that you never really fall out with anyone here. I've lived in small villages before and you avoid certain people because you just go, oh God, that guy's a pain in the neck. I don't want to chat to him or that person's a bit dodgy. Or, But here, you know, you get to know everyone and you do have to rely on everyone and you do have to foster that sense of humility a little bit. 
when you're needing something from someone else on the island, whether it's, you know, some supplies for food or for something for your house or you need them to help fix something or you need to help someone with something. We rely on everyone here to kind of make our lives happen because it couldn't happen if anyone was dead against it. I think everyone's very accepting here. That doesn't mean people won't take the mickey out of you (laughs) when they've had a few drinks, particularly with my hair at the moment. I've been keeping indoors, not seeing as many people recently. (laughs) We're in dire need of a hairstylist if anyone wants to move to Egg. At this point, I bet you've worked out whether or not you could live as an islander. Could you live on Egg? I don't know if I could. The lack of hairdressers wouldn't bother me, especially after a year of not going to the hairdressers. Anyway, we can't all live on egg. There isn't room for all of us. But we can probably learn from the egg experience. James Ellsmore from Island Innovation boils down the essentials for us. But if you think about the general use of community energy for for an island context, people want to feel like they're in control and that they have a say over what is what what is happening there. And although energy slash electricity is, you know, it's not the most sexy topic, it impacts everything. I think that the community energy structure is something that has not been used enough. And so that's why I think that in many countries, the uh, political structures and, and the financial structures are not necessarily there. Now, I think it's very interesting that James has picked up on the fact that if there aren't the political and financial structures to resource community energy, then individuals start to deploy their own energy supplies. Now, this might seem like a really positive thing to do. And while it might help the planet to have solar panels all over it, it can also mean that the price of electricity for those left on the grid, well, that actually becomes higher as these individuals take themselves out of the equation. Now, the highlands and islands of Scotland already have some of the highest levels of fuel poverty in Europe, which is one reason why community energy projects are so important here. But there are other islands in warmer climates where the future looks much less sustainable if you're poor. The Cayman Islands in the Caribbean, of course, a lot of very rich people, but that doesn't mean that everyone is is wealthy. And you actually can get this issue when you have these these grid systems. You've seen this in Sark, you've seen it in several Caribbean islands, where the electricity price gets to a point where the wealthiest people start to say, why am I buying it from the grid? I'll just cut myself off the grid, have my own solar battery generator and generate for myself. That can lead to a the very attractively named process of utility death spiral, where your top 10% of earners, let's say, take themselves off the grid because they, they feel like they want you know, their own system. The fixed costs that the grid have remain the same. And ultimately what that does is pushes the prices up for everyone else. So then your next 10% of people take themselves off the grid. And obviously the logical conclusion of that is that the wealthiest half of the island or population have removed themselves from the grid, have got their own batteries, their own little system in place. But of course, you have a poorer segment of the island that will never be able to do that. And so that does become a social justice issue because ultimately, who is going to pick that up? Is it the utility, which may be a private company? Is it the government at the expense of the taxpayers? How do you ensure that everyone has access to electricity, which really is, it should be a human right? 
You're listening to We The Power, a podcast from Patagonia with me, Lucy Siegel. And James has just made a really interesting point. Well, he's made many interesting points. But up until now, we've heard how community energy can be used to power communal buildings and give people that sense of autonomy. But what we're really opening up here is the question of energy as a human right. Okay, maybe not officially listed as a human right, but should be a human right as I briefly alluded to in episode two. Now, some islands give us a vision of a sort of energy utopia with excess renewable energy being used to power hydrogen production and communities happy to limit their use of hairdryers and toasters. But the alternative is really quite grim. Off-grid renewables are getting cheaper and easier to install, but what if that means we no longer need large community or countrywide grids? Well, the end result of that is very expensive energy for anyone who can't afford to buy their own panels or turbines. So really, you should have a system where it is affordable to have electricity and you don't need to come off the grid. But that's actually often a challenge, is that... If, if I put solar on my roof, I think, well, I'm doing a good thing for the environment. But if I'm reducing the amount of electricity that I'm buying from the grid and putting those expenses on other people, sometimes renewable energy is not as clean cut. You know, you, the, the way that that is, is done can have adverse effects. If only the wealthiest people are able to afford those home systems, then actually the, the burden is put on other people. And so we need to do renewable energy in a way that, of course, benefits the environment and we want to encourage as much as possible, but it needs to be done in a socially just way so everyone can share in the benefits, even if they don't have the cash in their pocket to put solar panels on their roof. Now, for James, it is clear that he thinks small islands can lead the way on resolving these issues, especially if they come together. A community of communities, if you like. As we found out in the last two episodes from Agamemnon Otero and Marianne Menesma, the real power of community energy is when you get cooperatives of scale. Now, we all need to be looking at islands very closely to see what might be coming next for our own renewable future back on the mainland. Islands have these unique constraints that often mean that things that would not be economically viable on a mainland are actually economically viable there. Whether it's, using my favourite example of Orkney, electric planes, hydrogen ferries, marine energy, all these things are happening in Orkney. And those things are potentially being tested there that could have these wider economic impacts and wider usage for everyone. And going back to the grid conversation, the constraints of island grids mean that they are facing challenges that I think all utilities and all grids will see in the next 10 to 20 years because of the change that we're going to go through. That will be due to the increasingly high cost of petroleum and and fossil fuels and also changing technology that means that there will be a risk of people perhaps uh, creating their own energy, leaving grids and also the pressure from the public to be greener. And so all of these things I think will put increased pressure on utilities to change. If you were to build a grid system from scratch today, it would look very different to the ones that have evolved over the previous decades. The technology, the economic structures, the policy being trialed in many smaller islands, I think is a little bit like looking into the future because they're facing some of the problems that larger utilities and grids will will face in 10, 20, 
30 years. And so there's a lot of lessons that I think can be learned from these projects that will have this wider applicability. And that's why I think islands are so interesting because there's a lot of new initiatives, a lot of new enthusiasm, and it's really good to see kind of community groups in different places that are leading the charge because ultimately that change has got to come from the local community. The drive for change has got to come from the local community for it to be sustainable. That was James Ellsmore speaking to me, Lucy Siegel. And that's it for this episode of We The Power. There are three episodes in this series and that was the final one. So if you haven't heard the other two, you know what to do. I want to say a huge thank you to all of our contributors for telling their stories. I can't tell you how much doing this series has opened my eyes to community energy and I have become really quite obsessed with it and I think that's important. I think that's really, really useful. Um, Maybe next time we speak, I'll have started my own community energy project. Who knows? But if you think that could be you and you want to get involved, please visit patagonia.com forward slash we the power where you will find so many resources i promise you um so thank you to patagonia and thank you also to our brilliant producer helen leonard and to grace swan for the music um please keep the faith in community energy it's definitely definitely worth watching um if you're involved with cop 26 and climate action Uh, Keep fighting, keep pushing. Uh, We are making progress. I know it doesn't always feel like that, Um, but I hope that our paths will cross again very soon. Until the next time, bye-bye. We, the power. Renewable community energy in action. Brought to you by Patagonia. For more information, visit patagonia.com slash we, the power. We, the power.